Hello and welcome to the School of Surgery podcast. Today we're going to talk about diabetes and the basics of diabetes. My name is Naomi Lasker, I'm an F1 at Royal Army Hospital and today I'm joined by Dr Stanworth, one of the consultants in diabetes and endocrinology. Hello. Hi. So today's objectives um, are essentially to learn about the basics of diabetes uh, and the diagnosis and management of it. Um, so Dr Stanworth, uh, we're all hearing that cases of diabetes are rising rapidly throughout the country. What, what, do you, what would you say causes diabetes? Um, well, the thing about uh, diabetes is that there are different types, uh, but the um, most common type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, and the, most, uh, the biggest um, factor that's led to the overall increase in the number of cases of diabetes uh, is the increase in type 2 diabetes cases that we've seen in recent decades. So um, that itself is quite tightly related into the increasing rates of obesity um, in the UK. And so then that leads on to thinking about, you know, um, diet changes over time in the population and uh, exercise uh, reductions. And so it's a big public health kind of issue as much as anything else, really. Okay. So I I know you mentioned type 2 diabetes there. What what about type 1? Well... Um, type 1 diabetes is, um, I mean, the different types. Type 1 diabetes is where an autoimmune process affects the islet cells in the pancreas that make insulin. And so the patient quite quickly becomes insulin deficient. So characteristics of that patient would typically be that quite suddenly they'll get symptoms that would go alongside a high blood sugar, particularly mm-hmm. um, polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss, and that those symptoms will have come on in a relatively short time scale. Mm-hmm. Um Typically with type 2 diabetes, um, the, the symptoms may still be there, but they should have been of a more gradual onset. Uh, and in that case, it's more a case where the, um, the body rest- stops responding. The key sites in the body that are supposed to respond to insulin, like the liver, yeah. stop responding in the normal way. Insulin levels gradually increase to kind of compensate for that. And then eventually there's a failure of the insulin levels to increase enough and the blood sugar starts to rise. So it's just much more of a gradual process rather than the destruction of the islet cells that you see in type 1 diabetes. So the patients tend to present uh, much more gradually. Okay, so I think the key things you mentioned there were the polydipsia, polyuria. Um, So are they the sorts of symptoms that I'd be looking for if I was to diagnose somebody? The classic triad of um, hypoglycemic symptoms would be polydipsia, polyuria and weight loss. Uh, Other things alongside it, such as tiredness, um, various types of minor skin infection that that uh, that, that can uh, that they can also be there, but it's that triad at the centre that really um, nails mm. things down. So we've talked about type one and type two diabetes. Are there any other types of diabetes? Well, I think the other group that is of particular relevance um, uh, in this talk would be just, or in this discussion, would be to consider those patients with pancreatic pathology. So mm-hmm. sometimes when patients present with a new case of diabetes, it turns out to be a manifestation of a, a pancreatic uh, cancer. Yeah. Um, and certainly patients also with a history of pancreatitis are at risk of developing diabetes subsequently. Uh, and of course, patients who've had a pancreatectomy uh, once more um, may be immediately rendered um, uh diabetic or, or develop it later if it's a partial pancreatectomy so certainly i think uh, those patients with direct pancreatic pathology should also be considered hmm. and what sort of tests do you think i should order if i were to suspect suspect this um well i think the um the priority if you're seeing a new patient who's not known to be diabetic and you're 
you're thinking that that's what's going on, then the, the right and safest thing to do is to have a low threshold for thinking that this is type 1 diabetes. Statistically, it's not the commonest diagnosis, but it is the one that it's dangerous to miss because if you delay the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, the patient may well develop diabetic ketoacidosis and mm. be at risk of, of death if they, um, if they don't get insulin in a timely fashion. Yeah. Um, so... Um, that's the starting point. Are there features of type 1 diabetes? Are these symptoms of an acute enough onset mm. uh, to make you think about type 1 diabetes? And then in terms of bedside testing, um, you should get a ketone check, whether that be a urine check mm. or, or you can now get um, bedside tests on, uh, you know, in the same way as a bedside, bedside blood sugar check. They can get ketone checks in some, some places as well. Yeah. So some sort of ketone check. If the ketones are raised, that's much more suggestive of type 1 diabetes um, you're then really looking at an urgent referral to be seen that day by the diabetes team. Mm. Uh, and you're also wanting to then exclude that the patient's already in diabetic ketoacidosis and treat yeah. that urgently if necessary. If, on the other hand, you don't think there are features of type 1 diabetes, and this is instead type 2 diabetes, then the key test is um, either a fasting glucose or an HbA1c, which will nail down the diagnosis. Okay. I've I've heard of the H one HbA one C before. Does this show if somebody's had long standing diabetes? Then yeah. So traditionally, this was a test that was used to assess the control of someone's condition in established cases. Um, but what we realised, or what has been realised in uh, recent years, is that um, using glucose levels to diagnose diabetes has problems associated with it. It can be quite variable from day to day, even on fasting samples, and. Uh, quite often you get borderline levels which then need an oral glucose tolerance test which in itself is mm. a bit of an undertaking. Mm. Uh, so unless there's a reason not to have a reliable HbA1c measurement, um, the World Health Organisation mm. uh, has suggested that this is the best and most reliable test for most patients to diagnose type 2 diabetes but it's important to emphasise that in type 1 diabetes because the blood sugar could have gone high quite yeah. recently, the HbA1c is not appropriate for use in that context. Okay, so what's what's the cutoff level then? Would you say for so six point five is the cutoff for diagnosis of diabetes, mm. um, and then um, six to six point five is, is the is the uh, borderline range that patients will be given lifestyle advice and uh, not diagnosed with diabetes but told they're at risk. Okay, so we talked a bit about how you diagnose diabetes and what sort of tests you'd do. Um, so how exactly would you would I start management plans for these for these patients? Well, um, again, going back to splitting um, the patients according to type 1 and type 2, um, mm. in type 1 diabetes, they need to be seen urgently and they need to be started on insulin. Um, that in itself is not a straightforward thing. A patient needs education about monitoring their own blood sugars carefully. Uh, they need education about the injection of insulin itself. Mm. Um, and they need a, a, a good point of contact for ongoing advice. Patients, to self-manage their uh, insulin deficiency, as in type 1 diabetes, need... Uh, a lot of information, but it's not realistic that they'll take all that on board mm -hmm. uh, in the first day. So they, these patients need careful um, handling but with the help of the diabetes team, and if you, you should never be managing that situation on your own. Yeah. Uh, in type 2 diabetes, it's a totally different situation. Um, the blood sugars will, will have been high for a long time, and generally speaking, there is time to think about it in terms of confirming the diagnosis and initial treatments. Initial treatments in that setting are often... Uh, non-insulin based and are very usually uh, tablet based treatments mm. uh, of various types metformin would be the commonest first line treatment um, obviously in surgery if you're talking about a preoperative case you mm. might be wanting to get blood sugars down quicker than in other cases so you might have a lower threshold for adding in more treatments quicker but generally speaking uh, we don't rush particularly are there any sort of patients that i would not give metformin to 
Yeah, contraindications for metformin. Um, one big one is is um, chronic kidney disease um, beyond a certain um, severity. Um, yeah. That in itself is uh, slightly controversial where the cutoff comes, but certainly below an estimated GFR of um, 30, um, mm. most people would agree that you shouldn't be giving metformin. Um, and um, the other people use a cutoff of a creatinine above 150 to, to rule it out. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I mean, the risk is not that you'll precipitate acute kidney injury by giving mm. metformin, it's that patients in that group are at a higher risk of um, lactic acidosis, which is oh, a yeah. rare complication of metformin, uh, but is at increased risk of patients in patients with um, uh, CKD. Um, the other thing to mention is that if the patient's acutely unwell, almost from any cause, certainly if you're talking about sepsis or mm. um, acute, acutely presenting heart failures, for instance, those patients are also at risk of lactic acidosis with ongoing metformin treatment. So again, the treatment should not be started in that context, and indeed yeah. it should be uh, omitted if those things are there. I've also, um, a few times I've requested for, for CT scans, they've, they've asked me to stop the metformin. Is, is that for a similar...? Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, so certainly um, contrast um, investigations, uh, metformin, that's another reason to omit metformin. Okay, yeah. um, that's great. So um, so we'd start the patient on metformin or, you know, some of the other medications such as, I think, did you, did you say citagliptin or...? or? Um, there's various, there are various, uh, there are, uh, it used to be quite simple um, yeah. in terms of the tablet options for diabetes. Um, we used to have metformin and sulfonylureas um, as the, the main two treatments. But mm. in recent years, there's been a real interest in this area from drug companies and there are a number of different um uh drug groups that have become available for mm. use um so yes the gliptins are one they are also related to um the glp1 analogs uh, and these are both um types of treatment that are based on the incretin set of hormones which is to do with the way that uh, the small bowel communicates with the pancreas uh, in response to food uh, mm. and that system is defective in type uh, 2 diabetes in mm. particular um i think um from a these medications are um, quite often subject to um, local guidelines as to yeah. where what exact groups of patients should be used. And to be honest, I think it's beyond the scope of you know uh, non-specialists dealing with patients in yeah. hospital acute hospital settings to be to be altering those treatments very mm. much. Um, you know, realistically, if you've got a new case, you'll be starting first line treatments. Yeah. And with longer standing cases, it's usually the right thing to hand it back to the person who's responsible for yeah. that patient's <laughs> diabetes, whether that be the general practitioner. Or, or, or a specialist, depending on the case. That sounds good. So I, I should dem- I should definitely refer to them usually when if there's yeah. new onset. I, th- I think if the, yeah, I think I mean the thing about uh, diabetes is that it's not just a case. I mean, we're talking a lot about managing blood sugars mm. today, but I mean, um, you, you really need to review the whole um, patient's um, behaviours almost yeah. as much as anything else, because everything that a patient does during a day will potentially affect their blood sugars. Mm. You've also got their other cardiovascular risk factors, which are all relevant, bearing in mind that 70 to 80% of patients with diabetes will eventually pass away with cardiovascular disease of one sort or another. Mm. Um, and then also you're mon- monitoring for the specific complications of, um, for instance, foot disease, eye problems, mm. um, uh, uh, renal disease related to diabetes. So all these aspects need somebody to have an overall view yeah. that they are monitoring on a regular basis for, for all these things as a whole uh, and then um, plugging the patient into the different services that are necessary for each particular part. 
So that is coordinated by, by one person. And for the majority of patients with type 2 diabetes, that would be the general practitioner. With other um, with type 1 patients, often the patient will be under hospital care for coordination. Mm. Right. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for that information then, Dr Stanworth. Thank you for listening to another podcast brought to you by School of Surgery. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook at School of Surgery, on iTunes, on Podomatic at schoolofsurgery.podomatic.com and finally, by searching School of Surgery on YouTube. Thank you very much and see you next time.